Welcome to Quick Hits, the only podcast that gets you smartenized. Today's episode, Hoist by Their Own Petard. Are gun owners really 32 times more likely to die from their own gun than to kill a criminal? Now normally on this show I'll pick one thing, one point, and talk about that somewhat in depth, and that way I can keep it kind of short and pithy. But in this case I'm going to talk about a couple of different aspects of arguments as far as guns and gun control are concerned. So it's going to be a little bit longer. Now, one thing that we constantly hear in the gun debate, which comes fresh and new and boring and old and repetitive every single time that there's a shooting, a mass shooting of any sort, is we want to see reasonable restrictions on guns. Why can't we have some reasonable restrictions? Well, some folks who are purists will say, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a right. We don't have restrictions on speech because we have the First Amendment. You can say whatever you want. You may be held responsible for what you say, but you can pretty much say what you want. We don't want to be restricting that because it's a right. And so they'll take the same point with guns. They'll take the same stance. It's a right. It can't be restricted. But there is another point of view, a related point of view, my personal point of view, as to why you can't have reasonable restrictions on guns. And it goes to the way nannies work. The slippery slope method that they use to achieve their final goals. Now, I've talked about this before in some other shows. If you go back, I don't know, 15 or 20 shows, uh, which is actually about four four years, four or five years ago because of my uh, long hiatus, there's a whole article called Slippery Slope, which talks about this in some detail. But I'm just going to go over it here again because some things are worth repeating and you may not have heard it. Or if you've already heard it, uh, you might want to just fast forward, whatever. Now, the issue that I'm most familiar with when it comes to slippery slope has to do with tobacco because tobacco is my favorite vegetable. I try and have a few helpings of it every day. And so I've been watching the nicotine nannies ever since they started with their first fairly reasonable sounding restriction, and that was they wanted smoking and non-smoking sections on an airplane. Of course, they didn't actually go to the airlines and say, let's do this. Let's make this a private decision. They had to have a law because that's the way they work. And so a law was passed. And then after a year or two had passed, they said, well, you know, having smoking and non-smoking sections in a enclosed area like that is like having peeing and non-peeing sections in a pool let's just make it no smoking in an airplane on a domestic flight that's less than two hours. Now, just a side note here. When dealing with nicotine nannies, you will find that they are obsessed with scatological comparisons. Most people had a scatological phase in their life where they were obsessed with pee and poo and things like that. Usually starts around age three, And they outgrow it by the time they hit four, four and a half. But not nicotine nannies. Just a few posts into any discussion on the matter. 
And you can be certain you're going to hear peeing in your pool, farting in your face, shitting on your salad. These folks just never grew up. They're just obsessed with bodily functions like a three-year-old. Anyhow, they went from two-hour flights to all flights, regardless of length, and then they extended it to any flight that ever landed in the U.S. So if somebody was going to, I don't know, Brazil from England and stopped off in Florida for that entire length of the flight, you couldn't have any smoke because, you know, the secondhand smoke is deadly. And this was the second thing that they did, and that was creating junk science, the junk science of secondhand smoke. In fact, as far as I can determine, the phrase junk science was coined to refer to secondhand smoke studies. So the slope continued, this slippery slope. And the next thing was mandating smoking and non-smoking sections in private businesses. Bars, restaurants, pool halls, bingo parlors. And then the law made those smoking sections smaller. Could only be half of your restaurant, and then 25%, and then 10%, and finally eliminated them completely. So smokers had to go outside in the cold, in the wind, in the rain, in the sun, whatever it was. New York State, even just to be dicks, their law says that you can have a shelter for smokers, but it has to be open on two sides. So you can't let them be warm in the winter because uh, that's not nasty enough to them. And then when people started going outside to smoke, they passed laws that say, well, you can't do it within 15 feet of a door or a window. And then within 25 feet. And the fight continues. There are states where you can't smoke if you live in an apartment. Where you can't smoke if you're in a car and there are kids in the car, or in some cases there are ever kids in the car. They're looking at a federal law now to make it illegal to smoke in housing projects. Now, if at the beginning of this, back when the first smoking and non-smoking section in an airplane law was passed, someone had said, you know, if you do that, we're going to reach a point where you can't even have a smoke in a bar, where you can't even smoke in your house. People would have laughed at him. That's nonsense. That's not the way things work. When, in fact, that is exactly the way things have worked. And so that brings us to reasonable restrictions on guns. I live in New York State, the most unfree state in the country. And they literally overnight pushed through the SAFE Act. It was like they wrote it on a Friday afternoon and pushed it through on a Friday night. So there was no time for debate and no time to slow it down or stop it. Which, by the way, they did the exact same thing with their first statewide smoking ban. Same deal. Written on a Thursday night in that case, passed on a Friday night, and boom, now it's the law. So the New York State Safe Act had a number of rather draconian provisions in it that turned millions of law-abiding gun owners in the state into felons with the stroke of a pen. One of the things was limiting the size of magazines. Magazines in New York State can't be any larger than 10 bullets. And I say magazines, not clips, because I know the difference between the two, because I'm not a journalist. 
Some handguns are designed with magazines that hold more than 10 bullets, so they specified that in the law. Let's say you have a Glock 17. If you have 10 bullets in the magazine, you're a good law-abiding citizen. If you have 11, you're a felon and should go to jail. Now, can you guess where this is going to go? Because the next thing that's going to come up is that 10 bullets is way too much for anybody. You really should be able to get by with six. And then, once people get used to that, four. And eventually, we'll get to the Barney Fife rule, where you're only allowed to have one bullet, and you have to keep it in your shirt pocket. One restriction that sounds reasonable is the mentally ill should not have guns. Of course, to the lefty, anybody who wants to own a gun is mentally ill. And another thing you'll notice, if you ever discuss this in social media, just like the nicotine Nazis, are obsessed with bodily functions the gun grabbers are obsessed with dick size you will not get more than five or six posts into a conversation before somebody makes a comment about the size of a gun owner's penis they are absolutely obsessed with it and again i think it indicates that they really need to grow up but back to restrictions against gun ownership by the mentally ill, which is part of the New York State SAFE Act. It has resulted in soldiers who are suffering from PTSD and saying, you know, I need, I need some help on this, and going and seeking help, having the police come to their door and confiscate their weapons because they're mentally ill now. They can't have weapons. And I can't think of a better way to discourage a soldier who needs some help because he's really messed up in the head from what the government had him do to say, meh, I'm not going to go get help because if I do, I'll never be able to own a gun again. It's very counterproductive. There was a guy in California whose wife had mental issues and Every couple of years, she would go sign herself into an institution, spend a couple of weeks there for regrooving, come out in better shape, and they would live their lives for a few years, and then it was time for her to go in for another regrooving. And this was part of their life. This was the way they lived their life. It was fine. But the last time she went, someone checked the wrong box, and instead of it being a voluntary visit, it was checked as an involuntary visit, and the police showed up at the couple's house and confiscated all of the man's weapons and all of his ammo. And it took him the better part of a year to get his weapons back, but they kept the ammo. It was something like eight or $900 worth of ammunition, and they just kept it because uh, they could. And this is with existing laws, not any new projected ones. The DSM-5 is a big, thick book that psychologists and psychiatrists use to categorize mental illness, and just about everything is in there. Anything that you like to do a lot, that you do intensely, anything that you are obsessed with is probably in there and categorized as a mental illness. So, all you do is say, nobody with a mental illness can own a gun, and then you say, everybody is mentally ill, and you disarm the whole population, except, of course, for the police. You really cannot 
get guns out of society, the only thing that you can do is you can say the only people who can be armed are the government. Because if you're going to try and get guns away from everybody, the only people that can do that are government people who have guns. And you can be absolutely certain that they're not going to give up their guns. And anybody who thinks it's a really good idea for the government to have guns and nobody else should read a history book or two. So that's why reasonable requests are rejected. Because reasonable requests, no matter how reasonable they sound right now, are the first step and the baby step to total gun confiscation. Back when the nicotine nannies were starting, they didn't say they wanted to ban cigarettes everywhere and make smokers pariahs that were hated and feared. But there were a few who admitted that right at the beginning. There were a few people who admitted that, but the, the movement didn't push that. The movement kind of buried that. And the same thing is going on now with people who want reasonable gun restrictions. You will find the leaders, the people who are really driving things, sometimes quietly and sometimes even now not so quietly saying they want to disarm everybody. So that's reasonable requests. Now let's move on to tweaking your bullshit meter. Because one of the numbers that gets pulled out anytime there's a mass shooting is that you're 30 times more likely to die from your own gun than you are to kill a bad guy. I've also seen the number 38 times. Uh, I've also seen it 42 times. Uh, because when you're pulling numbers out of your ass, you can pretty much make up whatever you want. Fortunately for them, it's easy to spew a lie in one sentence. Unfortunately for us, it can take several paragraphs to disprove that lie. Fortunately for them, it's impossible to come up with an exact number of times guns are used for defense. But fortunately for us, we can still rip apart their claims in a short podcast like this. So let's start with some baseline numbers. We're going to go with 2010 because it takes a while to compile numbers and these are probably the most accurate ones that we have to work with. In 2010, there were 31,513 deaths by firearms in the United States. 19,308 were suicide, 11,015 were homicides, and 600 were accidents. So we're going to use round numbers here because round numbers are sufficient to make the point and easier to say. So whenever you hear the phrase gun deaths, that should immediately pin the needle on your bullshit meter because you are dealing with a lying nanny. You see, gun deaths include every death by every gun, and they don't take out the suicides. Two-thirds of the gun deaths are suicides. And the people who say, well, if you have a gun, you're more likely to commit suicide. Well, that's not really true, because if you look at the numbers of suicides per population, and a list of all the countries... United States is down around 50. Even though we have the most amount of guns in the world, and every single country that's above us from the 49th place on up all have stricter gun laws than we do, and yet they have higher suicide rates. So yes, it's possible that 
someone who commits suicide with a gun might not have done it if the gun wasn't handy. And the gun certainly does make it easier. I don't want to diminish that fact. But the fact of the matter is, guns and suicide, eh, the relation is not really as strong as the gun grabbers would have you believe. So what we really should be interested in is not the suicides, but the homicides. And we want to look at overall homicide rates. Whether someone is killed with a gun or a bat or a pointed stick, it really doesn't matter. It's a homicide. So we want to look at the homicide rates of our gun-loving United States and all the other countries. And again, we're not 10th, we're not 20th, we're not 30th, we're not 40th, we're always about the 50th place in homicides. And that's counting all homicides, whether they're guns or bats or fists or pointed sticks. And again, most of the places with a much higher homicide rate have much stricter gun laws. So we just removed two-thirds of the gun grabbers' numbers by subtracting out the suicides. Let's take it a little further. What is the ratio of good guys killed to bad guys killed in a crime where there's a gun involved? This is a difficult number to get. Some things are really easy to count, like traffic accidents are easy to count because if you have a car accident, you have to report it to get your insurance. You have to report it by law. So when you report on the number of traffic accidents, you're down to, you know, a margin of error of a fraction of a percent, most likely. But when you're getting to things like defensive gun use, which the officials call DGUs for defensive gun uses, it's much more difficult. Because when a good guy chases a bad guy away with a gun, there's no need to call the police. The situation is over. In fact, there's a very strong incentive to avoid calling the police. Hello, police. I just threatened someone with a gun. So that really makes getting a precise number of defensive gun uses impossible. But there have been a lot of studies that will give us a good range. On the low end, they estimate about 800,000 defensive gun uses per year, and on the high end, 2.5 million. Now, some studies have reported absurdly low numbers, and most of those were conducted by the government or anti-gun groups. I've seen them as low as 67,000, although most of them are around 100,000. There's two common methods for concocting these low numbers. The first one is by counting police reports and news reports, which is inaccurate, as we just said, because most people don't report it when they've defended themselves with a gun. The second is with phone surveys done by the government. Hi, I'm here from the government. Have you pointed a gun at anybody recently? That's going to give you pretty absurdly low numbers as well. Now, there have been surveys that were done carefully, anonymously, and well done, just well put together that have come up with numbers of anywhere between a million and two and a half million defensive gun uses per year. Now, my completely unscientific gut feeling is that the 2.5 million number is too high. That comes to about 1% of the population, slightly less than 1% of the population, defending themselves with a gun year after year after year. 
100,000 defensive gun uses in a country of 290 to 315 million people, depending on when the survey was done, is absurdly low. So it's reasonable to conclude that the real number is somewhere in the middle. But here is the almost always overlooked key statistic. In nearly all defensive gun uses, 85 to 92 percent, depending on the study, the gun is never fired. Merely brandishing it solves the problem. Bad guy comes in, he's looking down the barrel of a gun, he decides that maybe he should reconsider his career choice. He leaves, the situation is over, the intended victim is safe, and it's done, and it's never reported. In most cases, either the bad guy isn't killed, or sometimes he's shot and not killed. But that's where the nannies get their number. They completely ignore the defensive gun uses unless the defender kills the attacker. And then they include all the suicides and voila, they've got a big scary number that has no relation to reality. Even if we go with the absurdly low numbers, their argument falls apart. If the number is, let's say, 100K, that's tens of thousands of murders, tens of thousands of rapes, tens of thousands of assault, and tens of thousands of robberies that never happened because people were able to defend themselves. Now compare that to the 10 or 11,000 gun homicides, and you, you can go ahead and toss in the 600 accidents if you'd like, and the math is pretty simple. Guns save far, far more lives than they take. Nannies, of course, of all stripes, love the for the children argument. Seven children are killed by guns every day, they declare. But while most of us define children as someone who's 12, 13, or under, gun grabbers use their own special nanny definitions. They define everyone under 21 as a child, which lets them get all the gangbangers in there who are out there shooting each other. By the way, uh, I have seen studies where they took out the gang killings in L.A., Detroit, Chicago, and New York. And the numbers of homicides go way down. That's really the majority of them. But the gun grabbers define anyone under 21 as a child. 17-year-olds are children. 18-year-olds are children. 19-year-olds are children. 20-year-olds are children. Won't someone think of the children? I very seldom use the words always or never, because it only takes one exception to be wrong. I can say with 100% confidence that nannies always lie, and I have never seen an exception. It doesn't matter if they're going after guns, food, tobacco, vehicles, weed, lifestyles, or anything else. Any numbers they quote are lies. Sometimes they just make up the numbers. Other times they use tricks like the one we just talked about. But no matter what technique they're using, if a nanny quotes a number, 
you can be certain that it's a lie. It's a lie of omission, it's a lie of commission, or it's a lie of pure imagination. And that's it for this episode of the Quick Hits Podcast. If you've learned a little something, if you've changed your mind, or even if you can just understand a different point of view without necessarily agreeing with it, congratulations, you've been smartenized. Lots of emails coming in just saying, hey, I'm listening. That's great. Thanks. Let me know. But if you want to argue or debate with me in something in email, feel free to do that too. I was listening to some of the older articles where I did have more email coming in with people who were adding things or debating things. Uh, And I think that makes it a little more interesting in the closing comments. But if you just want to write in and say I'm listening, I appreciate that too because I need to know that. Dave at DaveHit.com. We'll get you through. Put uh, something that says podcast or quick hits in the subject line so I don't miss it. Stop by the Facebook page. There's a quick hits Facebook page. You can stop by, like that, comment on some of the shows there if you'd like. The music that you're listening to in the background that I'm yammering over here is My Wonderful Shadow by the Aquamarines. They gave me permission to use this many, many, many years ago simply by promising that I would mention who they were from time to time, and I haven't done that in a while. So it's My Wonderful Shadow by the Aquamarines, available on iTunes. And so there's nothing else for me to say, folks, except that the Quick Hits Podcast is a journal of one man's opinion, and therefore should not be taken too seriously. Seriously.